With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is IAQ Radio. Indoor air quality radio. The voice of the indoor air quality industry. With your host, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week we've got a great show on episode number 530. We've got Dr. Shelley Miller. I'm calling this one the weatherization, ventilation, and respiration puzzle. Uh, it's new to Shelley. I just pulled that together this morning. I've been reviewing what we're going to talk about, and, and it's a little more of a puzzle, I think, than uh, many people realize. Dr. Miller's at the University of Colorado. She'll be joining us live in just a moment. But before we start, let's thank our platinum sponsor. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the Restoration Industry Association. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. I'm sorry to report there was no correct answer to last week's trivia question to identify N.B. Hutchian as the building science pioneer who stated that performance can only be defined when we know the limiting condition, i.e. the failure. Only then can we measure the actual performance as a distance to failure criteria. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, Friday, January 18, 2019, has been sponsored by Idea is a solution chemistry company creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's trivia question. What is the common thread running among management consultant W. Edwards Deming, band leader Glenn Miller, astronaut Scott Carpenter, and actor Robert Redford? Back to you, Joe. Hmm. That sounds like a tough one, too, to me, Cliff, anyway. All right, today's guest is Dr. Shelley Miller. She's an associate professor at the University of Colorado in beautiful Boulder and in the mechanical engineering department, also faculty in the interdisciplinary undergraduate environmental engineering program at the University of Colorado. She investigates indoor air quality, assesses exposure to air pollutants, and develops and evaluates air pollution control measures um, today, we're going to talk a little bit about a recent study called The Relationship Between Home Ventilation Rates and Respiratory Health in Colorado Home Energy Efficiency and Respiratory Health Study. They're going to call it the CHEER 
study. Uh, Dr. Miller last joined us. Let's see. I had it written down here somewhere on uh, May, May, I believe, 2015. Dr. Miller, do we have you? Yes. Good morning. Thanks for having morning. me. Great to have you back. We uh, did a show. It wasn't too long ago, maybe going on three years now, but at least two and a half. And uh, we had talked about the microbiome of the indoor environment. That was a lot of fun. And that's a, uh, a topic that continues to um, get a lot of uh, attention and, and research funding. And um, I'm wondering if, uh, have you been doing any more on microbiome studies or is that kind of winding down for you? Yeah, we haven't been doing too much on the microbiome studies lately. No, we've moved more into the space of uh, ventilation and respiratory health. And let's, let's talk about this because um, the last time we talked, you actually, I think you had started working on this where you were getting ready to start working on this relationship between home ventilation rates and respiratory health in Colorado, home energy efficiency and respiratory health study, I guess the CHEER study. Um, can you tell listeners a little bit about what that was? Yeah, well, first, what got you interested in, in the whole topic of ventilation rates and weatherization? Yeah. Well, for a long time, um, I have been following the research and, and, and studying how ventilation of homes Im impacts the health of the occupants. And, you know, in the 1970s, when we had the energy crisis, we tightened up all the buildings, and then we realized that a lot of people got sick because we had sick building syndrome, and we didn't really account for um, what was emitted indoors and the emissions from materials. And so, um, and so when this call for proposals on climate change and indoor air came from the Environmental Protection Agency, I really wanted to better understand if we're going to tighten buildings again now because of climate change, are we going to continue to impact respiratory health? And can we get some firsthand measurements of respiratory health and ventilation, which we really don't have we this association is um, sometimes shown anecdotally it's also pulled together from large-scale studies that look at um, ventilation and the indoor air impacts so some more data and some more studies on this would have been really helpful for us to understand what to do next and let's let's go over some of the uh, basics of, of the study John I think we have a slide the first slide. Uh, will that work for you here, Shelley? The map of the study region, I guess we can start with. Yeah, so we devised this study to try to get the most bang for our buck, and we decided to study low-income households because they are at higher risk for respiratory health problems, and we wanted to recruit from all over the front range, and so we had help from Excel Energy in the state of Colorado locating low-income homes that qualified for help weatherizing their homes. And when you weatherize a home, you do all sorts of things to save the resident money. You can tighten the building shell to stop wasting energy, but you can also replace re appliances with Energy Star appliances and what have you. And so they try to come in and help the resident save money. And so we recruited the people who were qualified and had participated in this study. And you can see the study regions here in blue um, in the front range in this slide. We ended up going to 216 households 
and, um, and, and they were enrolled and we visited every home for two hours over three years. Okay. Okay. And so this is a three year period and, and you, you measured the ventilation rate, um, ventilation air exchange rates. I want to talk a little bit about how that was done. So we give listeners a good background. Plus, these homes had different types of uh, weatherization performed on them. We'll have to talk a little bit about the different types as well. Where, where would you like to start? Yeah, if you go to slide two, you can see what we did when we visited our homes. Okay. And we, we had an engineering team and a respiratory team, and the engineering team did blower door testing. And we decided to use that measure because it's a measure that doesn't change it's a characteristic of the household. It tells us how tight the home is. And if you try to measure air exchange rates in a home, they vary daily, they vary with the weather. It's just a very, it's, a, it's an important measurement, but it's difficult to do when you're doing a cross-sectional study. So instead we did a blower door test, and then we estimated the annual average air exchange rate using a Lawrence Berkeley National Lab model that had been developed many years ago. We also characterized the home with a walkthrough and we made sure there was no carbon monoxide leaks and the residents were fascinated with our indoor air quality results. The respiratory team came in and did a survey of the respiratory health of the residents and also a spirometry test, which measures your lung function. And it's a pretty difficult maneuver. You have to exhale really hard into and a device and you can tell whether they have some obstruction in their lungs because of some um some innate respiratory problem and so we we that's how we measured health of the residents okay and then i, I we, we didn't talk much about the types of ventilation in these homes and, and that's something i think we need to did it vary um let's talk a little bit about that. Was it balanced? Was it, you know, just bringing outdoor air in? Is it positive balance? Uh, or did you have a mix? These homes were all ventilated for the most part by infiltration. They were older and uh, we only had a handful of homes that had been built with, with dedicated ventilation systems that were built green and they were built with e energy recovery ventilators. There were maybe 10 in all of our homes that we recruited that had those kinds of systems. Otherwise, everybody else was mainly infiltration and some kind of research heating system. And if you go to slide uh, three, you'll see the distribution of annual average air exchange rates in our home and we find this to be quite interesting because in the blue curve you'll see the homes that were weatherized by the weatherization team that was hired to come in to do a home visit and then the purple curve shows the non-weatherized and those were people who decided I don't want to do this but I qualify I just don't have the time or I don't want to deal with it. And then the Bell Green homes are these 10 or 11 homes that I'm talking about that had special ventilation to help with um, energy efficiency. One of the astounding things about it is there's not that much difference and they're really quite leaky. Yeah, I was looking at that. Uh, there's 
Well, there's a bit of a range there. You go from what point one or two, whatever that is, up to almost two and a half yeah. air exchange rate. But there aren't many in that higher air exchange rate side, if you want to call it that. Uh, most of them seem to fall in between like the point two, point three, whatever, and then uh, about one air exchange rate. Um, so the, these homes were weatherized to different levels. And then um, what, I'm just curious, did they all have like bathroom va uh, fans and or uh, kitchen exhaust? Some of them did and some of them didn't. Uh, and they, many, many of them, uh, a few of them had dedicated exhaust fans, but many of them didn't. You can, what we tried to do was observe what we could see as far as the weather the energy efficiency retrofits that had been done in the home so if you go to four let's see yeah if you go to slide four we we were unable to access the records for each home from the colorado energy office we um they were not uh, were allowed or they just decided not to give us the information about how the homes were weatherized Okay. So we had, we had, unfortunately that data would have been wonderful, but we had to then figure it out on our own. So each team went to the home and wand walked around the home and said, do they have weather stripping? Do the windows have weather stripping? Are the doors and frames caulked? And we focused on the, the activities in the home that could have been done that would have tightened the building shell which would have you know, kept outdoor air pollution out and, and contained indoor air pollution in the home uh, you know, because there was less air exchange. And there was foam ceiling and then ductwork ceiling. And those were the five interventions that we looked for. And there are plenty of other weatherization activities that we couldn't observe. You, know, mm -hmm. you can't see into a, a wall space and see whether they blew in new, more insulation or not. So of course we missed some. Okay. All right. Now let's talk a little bit about the, the respiratory um, effects. First, why did you choose that as the, the study parameter you were going to look at as opposed to other types of health effects? Mm -hmm. Well, we know from many, many years of research that air pollution has um, a profound statistically significant effect on cardiovascular health. And so that was the endpoint that we wanted to understand. And respiratory health, specifically like your lung function and, and whether you have asthma and allergy symptoms, um, can really be exacerbated by, a lot, by indoor air pollution and, and also outdoor air pollution. So that's why we focused on that. And it was a, it's a, it's a meth, you know, we could do a survey and we could do a spirometry test in two hours and then and call it good and go to 300 homes, you know as opposed to a much more complicated t type of test. And you relied less on, well, you did do questionnaire as well, right? We did. So you actually measured their, you know, their lung function and so on. And then you did a little questionnaire along with that. What other types of health effects are attributed to low ventilation rate in, in the literature? I know you did some literature search on that. Yes. I mean, there are, um, you know, we can have a low ventilation rate can cause lots of problems if there's an infectious disease problem. Like, you know, if, if you have a, somebody who has um, a, a flu or a, a, a 
some kind of infectious disease. So that's a problem. You can have um, irritation of your, of your central nervous system, um, headaches. You can have, you know, the sick building type of or more central nervous system effects. If you have a tight building and you contain a lot of toxic chemicals, you can have endocrine disruption problems, um, you know, all leading to cancer as well. And then even if you are not ventilating where you're using some kind of paint thinner and you can have extreme catastrophic health problems like death, you know. So it's a pretty wide range depending on what the air pollution source is and what you're doing in the environment. You know, I thought what was interesting is that most studies I've seen have focused on low ventilation rate, and, and you're looking more in a, a, at higher ventilation rates, I, I believe, here. And I'm also wondering, have there been other studies that you found that looked at health effects with higher ventilation rates and, and how, you know, because we always hear, well, build tight, ventilate right, you know, more ventilation is better. Uh, although lately I've been seeing, I was just at the IAQA conference and a couple of the presenters there were talking about the fact that, you know, higher ventilation rates may not always be better. So what evidence is there with respect to health effects when there are higher ventilation rates? There are a couple of really great survey papers that share all of the details that link needing more ventilation with better health. And, and so that's a really important principle um, that more ventilation, when you accumulate all of the literature, uh, leads to better health and also, um, you know, leads to a lot of savings in regards to health costs. Um, but in our study, the fact that we actually had higher ventilation rates was just a function of the homes that we studied. These low-income homes, very difficult to weatherize and, and make energy efficient and uh, not built that way. And it's very difficult. What we found, some of the retrofits weren't done very well. Um, it's very difficult to come in and retrofit a house for a limited amount of money and, and save energy. Um, and, and it's a complicated, what we found from this study, it's a complicated relationship between what, what pollution are you keeping out of the building and what pollution are you keeping in the building and, and how does that impact the residents? It's quite, I like your term, it's a puzzle. Okay. And more pieces, you know, to understand it. I mean, from our study, what we found ultimately with the questionnaire data is that if you live in an urban area near a lot of traffic-related air pollution and you have a leaky home, it is going to affect your respiratory health. Interesting. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit more about the, the results of the study. Um, I guess, John, do we have a slide? What, what slide would you like to pull up from here, Shelley? Well, if I could just back up a little, I wanted to share with you slide five. Okay. Uh, because I wanted to point out a couple of key energy efficiency retrofits that we found from our study are actually quite effective. When we did some statistical analysis of all the data from the homes and tried to understand which observed retrofit got us the mo most bang from our buck, what we ended up finding was that above all else, building volume and building age was strongly related to the ventilation rate. And, and of course we knew that, you know, older homes are leakier, um, but, 
when you then look at what energy efficiency retrofit can you do in the home to make it tighter and more energy efficient, we found that weather stripping of the windows and air handler ductwork ceiling were the most effective observed retrofits in the home for making it more energy efficient and a little bit tighter. So I wanted to share that with our practitioners, like, okay, if we can do two things in our home, let's look at those two. How close was, I would thought, I would have thought before you said that all door weather stripping would be as, or maybe more important than window weather stripping. How close are they? Well, the high, the bold air, uh, bold weather stripping is a statistically significant at 0.002 P value. That's a statistical term. The wet door weather stripping is not, it's at 0.1. And we were looking for a P value of 0.05. Um, it is a, it is a good thing to do, but I think the reason a window is so comes out more important is there's many more of them in your house and there can be a lot more thermal bridging around the window compared to a door. Okay. So if, if we're going to focus on two weather proofing, uh, weatherization techniques, your, inf your study field, uh, shows weather stripping around windows and air handler ductwork ceiling would be the two we should focus on. Yes. And of course, uh, I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the caveat is we, in this model, we don't have like, oh, you blew in insulation in the walls. So those, of course, would be, you know, what, what kind of R value and how much did you add? That's not part of our observations, but these two were, were strongly impor important. Well, let's talk a little bit about the air handler and, and ductwork ceiling, because I think maybe the location of the ductwork and the air handler, um, you know, you're in, you're in Colorado. What was the typical location? Were these uh, basement homes? Were they slab homes? Were they a mix? Did they have a closet air handler? Did they have ductwork going up into an attic or something like that? Right. That is a good question. We, I mean, we had a whole variety from the 200 homes, of course, but generally speaking, the older homes here in Colorado have crawl spaces and they have attics. So a lot of times the ductwork is, is in both places. Um, okay. Basements. Yeah. Which would, you would think that may have influenced how important that, um, that ceiling was because they go outside of the conditioned space essentially. Exactly. Yeah, they do. Did any of these homes have um, conditioned crawl spaces, Shelley? Did they, you know, were they all vented crawl spaces? We had a lot of homes that have radon control systems in them because we have high radon here, and, and we've been working actively to get radon mitigation in each home. So uh, many homes had radon mitigation systems. Um, but I am not sure about other, uh, other types of ventilation in the crawl space. Okay. I'm yeah. sure you weren't out there doing every one of these yourself. You had a team out there. <laughs> I did have a team out there. Yes. And they were great. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, let's talk a little more about some of the, the results that you came up with. Um, where would you like to go next? Great. Yeah. So the paper that's available and discusses our questionnaires uh, results can be summarized in slide seven. This is our key uh, results figure and here in this uh in this paper what we did is took all the respiratory symptom data and we used a 
an, an epidemiological approach to find associations between that and our exposure variable, which is the annual average air exchange rate. And what we find is if these, there are six graphs here, and on the x-axis is your annual average air exchange rate, and it goes from 0.1 to 2 air changes per hour on the x-axis. And on the y-axis is what we call the odds ratio, and this is the odds, you know, if you, if you um, go to Vegas, you know what odds are of whether you're going <laughs> to win or not. <laughs> and this okay. is the odds of getting this symptom. So in the first graph, it's the odds of having a cough or the odds of you took medications for wheeze, or you have a dry cough at night. And if you have an odds of one, this is an odds ratio, so it's the pro showing the probability of having it versus the probability of not. If you have an odds ratio of one, then you, you're not gonna have that symptom. But you okay. want the outcome to be higher than one. And so at least half of our symptoms were statistically significantly higher than one, you know, cough, medication for wheeze and dry cough at night were above, were statistically significant. They've been circled. <laughs> and so as we increase the air exchange rate, we increase uh, the probability of you getting a cough, etc. And uh, this was not our hypothesis. I have to say, Joe, we were uh, a little bit taken aback by this result. I'll bet. Uh, yeah, so we had to dig further, and you can kind of see from our data that it's, you can see it's almost, there's uh, an increase, you know, from low to high air exchange rate. Yeah. And we, we controlled for all sorts of variables, and that's discussed in the bottom. We controlled for your race, for your sex, for your age, whether you were a smoker, whether you had a gas stove in your home, whether you were located close to a major road, what the NOx concentration was. I mean, we thought of everything to control for to try to figure out whether what this result meant. And it still was a very robust result. Hmm. And I think in the end, our, our conclusion can be uh, related to the fact that these homes, many of these homes are near high traffic roads. And that okay. what this is, there's a response from the ability of an outdoor air pollutant to get into your home. And, and you're in your home a lot. So if you have, if you're always by road breathing NOx and breathing ozone and breathing, well, ozone is, is not such a problem, but PM 2.5 from outdoor air in your home, it's, it's affecting your respiratory health is what our associations say. Hmm. Interesting. So it's, it's not what you expected. I, I assume it's not what other uh, studies have, have shown, but I don't know that other studies actually looked at higher ventilation rate and and respiratory health effects um did you have any other studies like this to kind of uh you know to look at and and maybe help you understand a little better what was going on yeah i mean this this study's design is very unique and we don't have any other data that we're aware of that are similar but there are other studies to point to the there's lots of studies that show traffic-related air pollution is toxic and bad for your respiratory health. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that we were relating that to what happens in your home was very, very unique. And there's, only, there's maybe one or two studies that we pointed to in our discussion in the paper that, that, that could, could be related to this kind of result. Um, hmm. If you go to slide eight, the circled again now slide eight shows the difference between homes that were not close to roads and homes that were close to roads. And the light blue lines are a little bit higher than the dark blue lines, which says 
if you live close to a, a road, you had more chance of getting a cough or wheeze or dry cough. And that okay. kind of helped us interpret our association. I got you. So uh, you think a lot of this was related to the fact that they were closer to traffic, essentially. Yeah, and I think it's really important for us to understand that in urban settings, you know, we have a lot of traffic and we have a lot of homes near traffic. And so paying, a t paying attention to how the ventilation systems operate and are designed in urban settings that are impacted by urban air pollution problems is, is something that we really need to pay attention to. I guess I'm wondering what 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 recommendations you would make to the weatherization people after you know doing all this work and looking at your study and realizing how leaky the buildings are you know before and even I guess to some degree after the weatherization. What kind of recommendations would you make to them uh, with with respect to maybe changes in the program or different emphasis on the in the program now that you've looked at this data in more detail? Right. Oh, that's such a large conversation, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I, I may have thrown it in at the wrong time. Yeah, but <laughs> it's, good. it's good. It's good. I I mean, what I'm what I'm thinking about is what can we do that's you know out there in the forefront and really creative in terms of bringing into homes fresh outside filtered air and we can bring this fresh outside filtered air into a home on a regular basis and then ventilate out of the house you know all the combustion generated air pollution from cooking and and all other activities out you know there's this can we bring in good clean air that's been filtered and exhaust the toxic air that's indoors in, in a balanced way that that's also cost effective and, and easy to retrofit. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a really complicated problem, but that's kind of where I'm going. And that's why I like, for example, programs in California that are saying all new homes now have to be built with these kinds of ventilation systems in them. We're not building any more homes anymore. They don't have this. We've got to have, some type of um, balanced ventilation, essentially. Did you see any balanced ventilation in these homes? Well, as I said, we only had about 10 or 11 homes that were balanced in the, in, oh, there were. in the way that they had an ERV system. They brought in outside air that was treated and they, and they exhausted inside air. And they were, they were really well, they're home. Um, so they're for low income um, residents in Boulder and Fort Collins and Loveland and built by Habitat for Humanity and also by the city of Boulder. And they were done in a really nice, you know, healthy way. And it's only 12 homes, but when we looked at them, we did see, you know, some anecdotal better respiratory health and some okay. better indoor quality measures. So I think it's worth looking at. And I think the state of California is actively or there's a study actively going on right now at looking at the impacts of these better, uh, these different de ventilation designs. Now, what other types of um, measurements did you take in, in these homes? I know you measured the ventilation rate. Did you do other types of measurements like, you know, carbon dioxide or CO or radon or anything like that? We did. We, we did a sub study of, 30 homes over two years during the summer 
when we have a lot of fire related air pollution and we have traffic related air pollution. And so we said, well, let's do an indoor air quality study of of about 30 homes because that's about all you can do given the the instrumentation resources. And uh, and so that was that was a study that you can see um, summarized. I think probably we can go to slide 12. Tell you what, Shelly, why don't we do this? Let's break for our halftime because that sounds like something we'll talk about for a minute or two. And uh, we'll thank our sponsors and we'll come back and we'll put slide 12 up and uh, return with Dr. Shelly Miller. Great. IAQ Radio Platinum sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Gold sponsors are Particles Plus engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at WolfSense.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at iaqa.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. Okay, we're back for the second half of our interview. We've got Dr. Shelley Miller from the University of Colorado. We're talking about ventilation rates and uh, respiratory, respiratory health effects. And uh, Cliff, before we jump into the kind of offshoot study that Shelley's working on, did you have any questions you wanted to add? No, I'm good, Joe. I'm good. Good to go. All right. So, uh, and by the way, I've got a text question here. I just want to bring up, Shelly, because it, it may or may not tie into this next section. It says, um, since radon was brought up, uh, the listener has noticed in homes being built tighter and tighter, they find bathroom uh, vent fans and range hood fans have the potential to overpower radon mitigation fans because they're you know, kind of inexpensive uh, fans to run 15 cents a day. Uh, I'm wondering if you um, if you saw anything like that within your uh, studies. Well, that's such a good point to bring up. We did not we did not look at that in our study. Uh, so, but we did do a small study with the city of Colorado Springs. We only it's a small ten home pilot study where we looked at radon concentrations in the home and again it was a three-day test so it's very short and highly variable that measure but we looked at radon before and after weatherization activities happened within the community and just 10 homes anecdotal of course that we didn't see any effect on the radon 
concentration before and after weatherization. But that is a slightly different result than what you're asking about. I think that's a really good question. I don't know the answer to that. Okay. And that's maybe something we'll, we'll keep an eye on down the road. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the other, the other study you mentioned. Do you want to bring up a, a particular slide? We can talk about the slide 12. It shows you some of the indoor air quality measurements we made uh, in 30-ish, 30 homes. We, have, we measured PM 2.5. It's the number count. We measured black carbon. We measured nitrogen dioxide. And we measured carbon monoxide. And, and so there's four, there's four graphs here that show the concentrations we measured. And on the right side is the way we determine whether there was a wildfire plume effect or not. We used some satellite data and we said, oh, today, the one on the left, we're being impacted by wildfires. And the one on the right shows, oh, Colorado was missed by the wildfires. I and, see. Uh, and so we categorized them between we had plumes from wildfires and we didn't. And so on these graphs, you see uh, no wildfire plume and all the way up to a lot of wildfire smoke from none, low, medium, and high. And, and then we also are showing the indoor and outdoor concentrations. So what we determined was that, and this, was, this is pretty you know, obvious, I think, to most of us, but you, what's the impact of wildfire smoke? Well, PM 2.5 numbers increase a lot um, outdoors, and they do increase some indoors. So that's the first graph on the left. We saw black carbon in impacts, but uh, no nitrogen dioxide and, and really no carbon monoxide impacts hmm. um, on the indoor quality in the homes from wildfires. Interesting. Okay. And, and where would you, I mean, taking what you have here, where would you like to go next with this type? Because I know the wildfire thing is a big topic out, you know, out West. Um, do you have anything else you're working on now or thoughts on future research that um, will look at other, you know, related issues? Yeah, there's so many communities that are struggling with wildfires and wildfire impacts. And, and I think that the two things we need to be looking at is how can we deploy on a rapid scale technology to homes that are impacted to protect the health of the residents? So, can we get out? Um, can we get out some air cleaners into these homes? They're really effective at helping to reduce the impacts indoors. Um, and then, and a long term, long term, it, it, this also goes to my point that if we if we can provide balanced ventilation with incoming air that's filtered, uh, we can you know, protect our homes better from wildfire effects. And I also think we can get the word out that, you know, actually if you have a recirculating uh, heating system in your home, even though the filtration is coarse in that system, if you run it continuously, it will take out the particles in your home and that's also protective. So just educating people about how to protect their homes is, is, is really important. You know, it, it, Reminds me of a, a show we did, and I noticed uh, Linda Wigington is, is listening in, and, and she's doing uh, work on reducing outdoor contaminants in indoor spaces. And um, they've been doing some work on modifying air handling units to put in a four-inch filter and uh, to to tighten things up and to make sure the return is is designed in a way where you know putting in that four-inch filter will 
will not cause problems for the system. Um, it seems to me like maybe some of what you're looking at and what she's doing, because hers is all based in the Pittsburgh area, it seems mm -hmm. to me some of those types of modifications might be helpful in the areas where there are wildfires. Yes, I agree. I think that's great work and, and really important. That's, that's great to hear. Yeah, I think uh, if there's some way we can kind of mix those two things together, get her, her stuff moving out toward that wildfire area, it might help a little bit. Well, let's, let's go back a little more to the, to the first um, topic we were, we were going over. And that, that was your study on, uh, you know, ventilation and weatherization and, and, and uh, respiration. Um, let's kind of, were there any other uh, results in the slides that you wanted to talk about before we kind of give an overview of the summary of it? Well, I wanted to share, I could share briefly the results that came out of our spirometry measurements. Okay. Uh, so that, that result can be seen on, let's see, what slide is that? That is probably slide 10. And again, these are very, you know, statistical and, and you know, researchy. Um, so I'm trying to in, in, interpret them best I can for, our, for everybody that uh, what this this graph is trying to explain is how was the lung function associated with annual average air exchange rate. And we, we have a measure called the FEV1, that's the forced expiratory volume in one second, and the forced vital capacity is the FVC. These are the measures that you get when you blow into this uh, device. If you have had asthma, you will, you will know what I'm talking about. What's interesting right. about spirometry is it's hard to do, so not everyone can do it. I think a lot of our listeners might also be familiar with it because uh, if you work in the asbestos abatement industry or asbestos inspection, um, OSHA regulations require that you have a baseline uh, spirometry. At least they used to. It's been a long time since I've uh, since I've taught that kind of training, but. Uh, I think some people would be familiar with that through those types of, uh, for that type of reason. Oh, perfect. Yeah. And so this graph again is showing the, um, the relationship between uh, how, what's the impact of annual average air exchange rate on these measures. One thing I want to point out is that we had a lot less people who could do this compared to filling out a survey. So mm. unfortunately we have N equals 244 people. And a lot of the people who couldn't do it had COPD or they had um, severe respiratory problems and they just couldn't do it. And so in the survey, if you have COPD or respiratory, um, hard respiratory problems, you can fill out a questionnaire. So we had 300 mm -hmm. people do that, but you can't do this. So I think we're missing some of the sickest people in our population with this measure. Um, that being said, if you look at the graph that says FEV1 over FVC score, we see that there is an association so that the, those three first lines, model one, two, and three, do show that as you increase your annual average air exchange rate, you also increase and get better lung function. Um, and that's the hypothesis we went into this study thinking. Mm. <laughs> the more ventilation, you know, so I like this result. The more yeah. ventilation you put into a house, the better your lung function is. And, uh, and so that is a really um, 
that makes sense and that was our original hypothesis. Unfortunately, what we find is that the models are somewhat unstable and so the result doesn't stay consistent as you do a sensitivity analysis. That's why you see um, some of the results a little bit all over the place and below the line and what have you. It's a statistical thing. But, uh, but so our conclusion right now is that it appears that there is association between more ventilation and better lung function, but we didn't have enough people in our study to make that a conclusive statement. And when you say a sensitivity analysis, can you explain that again? I think you went over it a little earlier, but just so the people are aware. Yeah. So in the, what we said was, okay, what if we exclude participants that were built to green standards? So we, we drop, you know, um, 12 people out of the, what if we exclude participants who lived in townhomes? Um, what if we exclude participants that lived in Boulder, Loveland, or Collins? Or what if we looked at people who only had asthma? So these are these little sensitivity analyses to see. And you, what you want is your association to, to be the same no matter what you do with these data. I and, see. Um, and it didn't quite hold up. Like in the right-hand graph, you see model four is where we excluded homes with mechanical ventilation systems. And mm. the result drops below the line slightly. So we're like, oh, shoot, that didn't hold true. You know, but it's, it's close. You can see from the graph that it's just a little bit below the line. <laughs> okay. Okay. Was there another? Let's go to another slide here, Shelly, while, we, while we've got these up. Um, John, was there? What about this one? Data filtering removal of indoor source effects. Oh, I wanted to just show people how we, what we did with our indoor air quality data in our fire study homes. As you know, when you're making air quality measurements in a house, you have a lot of impacts from the activities people are doing in their home. And mm. so in this graph, you see three large spikes. And you can see that the concentrations get really high with those spikes. And those are activities that people are doing, mainly cooking, that generate pollution indoors. And so in order to find out what the impact was of outdoor air pollution, we built, we have a data set where we filtered all the cooking related events. So gotcha. we can take a look at what's the outdoor impact. Were there other events that were close to cooking, say vacuuming or anything like that? No. I mean, even though we charted a lot of activities from the people in the homes, the main event in your home that generates the most air pollution is cooking, um, yeah. with both with and without uh, gas appliances. Um, and that but, has been a, a big focus lately of uh, some of the research. And you know, I know Lawrence Berkeley Labs has done a lot on that, trying to get people to use the exhausts in their kitchens and maybe cook on the back burners and, and things like that. Um, have, you, have you been doing any of that work? We have done some work. We have a really interesting paper that came out on the impact of cooking in passive houses. And uh, your audience knows probably passive houses for these very um, tight homes with balanced ventilation. They're, they're fabulous homes that are designed and built. But what, what we've seen in our homes that we studied was that they're not they're not accounting for cooking like they should be and and so we 
we looked at that and it was a pretty significant impact in these homes, the cooking activities. So we're actively encouraged, you know, passive house thinkers and um, designers to find a better way to deal with cooking. Okay. And maybe we could get uh, after the show a link to that study so that uh, Cliff could put it in the blog. Um, Cause I, I think there's some people that might be interested in that. Yeah. I'd love to I'll pass that along. Yes. Okay, great. Um, let's go back to the slides, John. Were there any more on here that we missed, Shelly? I just want to make sure we got the ones you wanted to cover. Well, I wanted to point out 13. It, this result is, is fascinating to us, and we're not sure what to do about it, so I wanted to throw it out there. All right. <laughs> <laughs> In this one, we calculated the indoor-outdoor ratios of the pollutant concentrations, and, and that kind of gives us a sense of, how are they in? How high are the pollutants indoors compared to outdoors? Okay. It's a rough measure. It doesn't take into account, you know, infiltration effects as well as, as you could do it in different ways. But what pops out at us here is the CO graph. We see the CO data showing us that the indoor levels of CO are four to seven times higher than the outdoor levels. And compared to all the rest of the pollutants, which are mainly outdoor-generated pollutants anyways, besides PM and black carbon from cooking. But what's astounding to us about this CO data is that when you look at the actual concentration, the absolute concentration, the levels are low. They're not high. They're not, you know, they're below the action level. They're way below the action level, typically. Uh, and so... We're concerned about this information and wondering if there's these this low-level CO that's in homes that we're all that many of us are exposed to, maybe due to in our indoor glass appliances that is just always present in our home. And and so I, I want to explore this further because it was quite an interesting result to us. It's hard to measure low-level CO in a home, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so How that how did you measure it? We built in-house some very special sensors that had very low sensitivity to CO uh, uh -huh. and helped us pull out these, these data that are, you know, they're below, you know, the typical um, concentration of maybe they, we were there one part per million, you know, pretty small mm -hmm. uh, CO. Interesting. Very interesting. But the other ones seemed, uh, you know, they weren't as uh, skewed, I guess. Although I'm looking at the ozone. Uh, can you comment on that one? Yeah. Uh, what that shows us is that, you know, ozone is an outdoor air pollutant. And it's, it, when it comes indoors, it's highly reactive. It gets removed by surfaces right away. And so, so we often see a reduction about, um, to about 30% of outdoor concentrations indoors. And so that validates, you know, our understanding of ozone. Okay. That, that one did not surprise you then. Yeah, that is not surprising. That is a, that is a, that's what a about the, the PM 2.5. I would, I guess I'm a little surprised it's where it's at, but maybe, maybe you feel differently. Well, again, remember these data have been filtered for okay. the events. So okay. these data are like, okay, this is the outdoor PM 2.5. And, and most of, you know, it's coming from outdoors when you filter the cooking events. Now, if we added the cooking events in, it would look a lot different. Gotcha. Okay. Let's go to the next. Uh, is there another slide you wanted to go over? There well, you there's go. There's one more.
more, I'll just throw it up there. It's the proximity to major roads. And again, this supports our original, our other conclusion with actual measurements showing that as you move closer and closer to a major road, which is on the x-axis, you know, near zero, you're really close to road. And when you get to 600 meters, you're far from a road. And that the indoor concentrations um, are the blue square, a blue colored uh, triangles and the, and the orange is the outdoor concentrations. And as you move closer to a road, you get higher PM 2.5, you get higher black carbon, you get more CO and you get more NO2. And, um, and that's both indoors and outdoors. So, so this validates with measurements that traffic related air pollution is impacting our indoor air quality, which, which we know, but it's just, you know, we gotta pay attention to this traffic thing until we move away from um, fossil fuel vehicles and traffic, you know, what can you do? Well, it's, you know, if you wanna be a more energy efficient society, you want people living closer together. And, and if they're living closer together, they're going to be living closer to roads. And so uh, I agree, it's, it's an important uh, topic that we're going to have to wrestle with as, as we, you know, continue to try and be more energy efficient. Yeah, that's right. I guess one way is to get more, uh, you know, more mass transit and try and cut down on the amount of, of uh, pollutant from the cars. But we're also going to have to look at maybe do we build differently when a home is located within a certain distance from a, a highway? And I don't know that anybody's really looking at that. Do you? I don't think so. And I, I think it's, that's key from, uh, from what we're finding. And, and, and uh, you know, it's been, a, it's been a concern for quite a while as well. But, yes, I think we need to move in that direction. And it's not just here. I mean, if you look at, you know, China and India and other places, it's, it's exacerbated even more, I would imagine. Uh, you know, they're, they're living in dense communities and high rises and, all close to uh, close to where the highways are. So, yeah, and more and more people in those develop um, in those societies are, are getting their own vehicles and driving more, and, and so and then of course when you add the coal combustion into the mix, then you have a, a real a real air pollution problem like we're seeing. Yeah, they're like in Pittsburgh. We have you know high outdoor uh, PM two point five. I'm a little southeast of pittsburgh actually a good bit but uh, i still get the effects of that here when i when i do particle counts i i see higher levels outside here than you would expect i'm up on a mountain i'd expect it to be a little lower than it is but you know I'm, well, uh, you're, you're commenting on a pretty interesting phenomena which is that when you have dense forests and trees which you have in pittsburgh area um and they and they release volatile organic compounds it reacts with the ozone in the atmosphere and makes particles. So <laughs> even though you're away from traffic, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the particles you could be measuring could, could be coming from that really interesting uh, chemical reaction. I'm glad I mentioned it. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> hey, Joe, if I might. Go ahead, Cliff. Uh, yeah, I was recently in Boston and I was doing some consulting on a fire restoration project. And the issue was whether or not there was remaining uh, fire residue on, on contents. So we went out and I had already filed my report that we were making an inspection because this case is going to trial. So we have a meeting in the attorney's office. It's downtown Boston, uh, a prestigious law firm, big building, and you know, we're up on the 15th, 20th floor, something like that. And uh, he had asked me, how do we test for 
smoke residues and so on and so forth. And, you know, what, what I, I found this technique that works pretty well is we use these, I like to use a white woman's cosmetic sponge and I like to wipe it on surfaces that are most likely going to collect that have static electricity, such as plastic, uh, et cetera. They happen to have a large television set mount or t- TV screen mounted on the wall. So I just went over to it. I wiped it and I was startled. I mean, it was absolutely black. You could see all this residue. I think you are exactly right that, and I think in high rise buildings, people just haven't even thought about it yet. So it's also in big buildings and urban areas. Good point. Yeah. When you anecdotally talk to residents, um, that live near these major roads, they say, I have to keep my windows closed all the time because I get so much residue into my house. Um, you know, and even here in Boulder, there was some residents who live right on Canyon and they were really concerned because they live right above the bus depot and they have lots of black particles coming into their house and they were getting respiratory effects because of it. And they're like, what do we do? Well, well they ended up moving, but, um, <laughs> not everybody you know, has that choice. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, Shelly, let's let's wrap it up here with uh, let's go back through the conclusions on on the main study we've been talking about the cheer uh, study, and then uh, maybe a little on um, where you think we should go from here. Sure. Uh, from the cheer study, we found strong associations with respiratory health using survey questions between the annual average air exchange rate and um, asthma and asthma and allergy symptoms. So as you increase your ventilation, you get more of these symptoms, uh, probably from traffic-related air pollution. Uh, But when you measure lung function tests, you know, you do see that the impact of more ventilation is good for lung function for for healthy people. Uh, And so I, I think paying attention to the most sensitive populations who live nearest to traffic could, could be showing why we're seeing this effect. Like and very sick respiratory pe- people are impacted a lot more than healthier people. Um, and health, and we all need more ventilation. That's clean air coming into our home. So could we move the building community in that direction where we say, okay, look, we got to get good ventilation in here. And, and here's how we do it. I'd love to see more of that from the building community. You know, they're out there building these buildings that hang out. You know, we have them for hundreds of years. Can we really think creatively and, and, and address these problems? Interesting. I, you know, it, it makes me think about the, um, I just came back again from IAQA and they, they caught me by surprise. And uh, I was on a panel with about three minutes notice um, on emerging issues in indoor air quality. And, uh, I, I jotted down some emerging issues, and, and one of them was just PM 2.5 in general and, and, and the issues that we have with PM 2.5. And after listening to you today, I'm thinking to myself, a lot of uh, people that do indoor air quality in, investigations um, need to think more about the effects of PM 2.5 or particulate in general on respiratory health effects because, you know, a lot of times when we hear respiratory health effects, we think mold. And people are looking for mold, and it may or may well be that they live close to a highway, and that it's more the the particulate in general that's causing their issues, as opposed to some mold, and that we have to better understand how to filter the outdoor air that, that's coming into our homes, especially when you're living close to those sources. 
Yeah, and many of you, many of you might know I'm a big Twitter fan, uh, and we had this exchange recently where I was pointing to PM 2.5 being traffic related, and a lot of people reminded me that it's also wood burning related. And in many oh. countries in the world, you know, their biggest problem is wood burning and biomass burning, and 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 over here, of course, in the U.S., we have wood burning stoves, and so wood burning is also a big you know, a big contributor to global air pollution problems. And then you've got the forest fires to add in as well. Yeah. Which is another form of wood burning. You pay attention. (laughs) That's great. All right. Well, uh, first, before we wrap it up here, it's, it's getting real close. Where do you suggest we go from here on this research? Are you doing other research related or have you, I'm sure you've made recommendations within your paper on where to go from here. Well, I do think, you know, our data was cross-sectional. We looked at each home once. It would be really interesting to follow home and its residents before and after an energy retrofit and look at their ventilation rates, indoor quality, and respiratory health. Mm. Um, I think it's important to look at the impact of new ventilation standards on respiratory health, like what's in California. Um, and, and so these and then these so these kinds of things should be continued if we can get the funding for them. Very good. All right. Uh, Cliff, any final thoughts? I'm done. Thanks, Joe. Shelly, before we go, we always like to give you the last word. Anything that uh, you'd like to add before we go? Uh, no, this has been great to be here. Make sure you can contact me on Twitter or email if you have any other thoughts, but it's been great. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure, and we'll get uh, the contact information in the blog. Uh, the blog will go out next Thursday before our show. By the way, I've got an interesting show next week, and I I was negligent and did not put the doctor's name. I've got an MD uh, coming in. We're, we're going to talk a little bit about a study they did. It was um, how Candida had crossed the uh, blood-brain barrier, and uh, he's got a lot of background in um, – uh, fungal infections and fungal health effects. And I'm uh, looking forward to having a little different perspective on that topic next week. So I want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man Cliff Zlotnick. Of course, this week's guest, Dr. Shelley Miller at the University of Colorado. My engineer, John, you got to have faith at the controls. Uh, most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners, download those YouTube videos. Check us out on Podbean. We're still putting them up on the old talk shoe site. And uh, we'll look forward to getting back together with you again next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.